So, Father, I pray that you would help us to preach. So this isn't just me rambling on, but that, Lord God, you would speak to us, uh, maybe even through my lips and through your Spirit in our hearts. So, Lord God, we offer ourselves to you and we ask that we would preach, that this wouldn't just be me, me, it'd be us, it'd be you, and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. If you haven't been to church in a while, you picked a great, 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 great day to come because we're talking about the bowls of wrath. Preaching through the revelation, and today we're, we're beginning to assess the, the bowls of wrath. <laughs> Yahoo! Wrath translates this Greek word thumos. It's a noun and appears to be from a verb which means something like to sacrifice. It's also translated passion or, or fury. It refers to like a passionate burst of, of anger. In one way, it may seem kind of esoteric and hard to understand, and yet I think you all know what it is. This is a picture of the rearview mirror in my old Dodge Durango. Uh, it died a couple months ago, and before I left it at my friend's shop, I took this picture. That's a spitwad in the rearview mirror. Uh, that's why I took the picture, because my son Coleman shot it at me 17 years ago on our family vacation, and I left it there on the, on the, on the mirror to remind me of him and what a good time uh, we had. To me, that's worth more than, than the whole car. To the right of the mirror, you'll notice something like an impact crater. It's not directly related to the spitball, but it might help explain my, my wrath over what happened. About 17 years ago, on vacation, we were driving down the freeway in Phoenix, Arizona. Went out of the right side of my eye, caught something flying through the air, and all of a sudden, I heard an impact. It sounded like, like a bomb. A huge trunk, a chunk of mud and rock had hit the windshield on the passenger side right in front of my bride, and for an instant, I thought she was dead. In front of me, just far enough away so you couldn't see the sign on the back, there was, there was this truck that's in the back said, not responsible for broken windshields. It was a semi, a gravel truck. It was changing lanes. Rock and dirt were falling off of the fenders. Well, once I saw that Susan was alive, I was suddenly overwhelmed by this, like, just raging fury that seemed to, like, rise up from somewhere deep in my soul. I started chasing that semi, that gravel truck, with our Dodge Durango. I pulled up next to it, honking and pointing to the windshield and pointing to the truck, and I, I don't know if I always use the appropriate finger. I wanted to run the gravel truck off the road with the Dodge Durango, but it was too small, and the guy wouldn't pull over. I wanted to catch him and consume him with a burning ball of fiery thumas. I couldn't stop. I couldn't rest. It was like my blood was on fire really freaked the kids out. Later, it freaked me out. But you see, for a second, I thought he took my bride's life and maybe my kids' lives, and so now I earnestly wanted to take his life. In the words of John Rambo, he drew first blood! And now I wanted blood. 
And that's pretty much a summary of the history of our world, isn't it? It's why armies ride war horses in, into war. They want blood. It's why people demand blood for blood until this whole world is like swimming in an ocean of blood. And yet, you know, that wrath of mine, it was a testament. It was a testament to my love. I mean, I wouldn't have felt wrath if I didn't first feel love for my bride and for my kids and even for myself. I mean, I knew that what happened was so wrong because my wife and my kids are so right. I mean, so, so good. And to take the good, which is the life, is the very definition of evil. The life is in the blood, says Scripture. If you've never felt wrath, I highly doubt that you've ever felt love. Not even for yourself. C.S. Lewis wrote, wrath is the fluid, love bleeds. Well, that thumos, it didn't subside. I mean, it didn't really subside for about an hour, but it didn't subside until I remembered that I'd been a truck driver. <laughs> and not always a good one. I once drove a supply truck the wrong way down a parking garage exit, destroying thousands of dollars of new high-pressure sprinkler equipment that my company had just installed and creating a literal flood of, of water and thumos. Thumos for me, back at, back at the office. Well, anyway, I think that was thumos. That's what we mean by thumos. I think that was thumos that day on the freeway. It's the fluid love bleeds. And now I should tell you, I think I'm kind of a coward. I'm really not a, a fighter. And so it surprised me that day. Surprised me that day on the freeway. And it really surprised me as a new father. You know, a husband loves his bride. And Scripture says that the Lord, our maker, is our husband. A husband loves his bride. And a father loves his children. And Scripture, Jesus said, pray our father, our father. Pray that. One day when I was a new father... I took my, it must have been about three, I took Jonathan to Walgreens with me. With him, he brought this um, Mickey Mouse candy Pez dispenser that I had bought him earlier in the day. All day, he kept interrupting me saying, see Mickey Mouse, see Mickey Mouse, see Mickey Mouse. And, and by that, he mean, see me, see me, see me, daddy. And so I would stop whatever I was doing and I would say, wow, Mickey Mouse is awesome. And you're awesome too. You're awesome too. Well, while we're, while we're at Walgreens and being checked out, Jonathan, he walked up to the counter, he stood on his tippy toes, and he, and he held up Mickey Mouse and said, See Mickey Mouse? See Mickey Mouse? See Mickey Mouse? There was this kid behind the counter, a high school kid. He was checking us out, and, and he didn't see Mickey Mouse. He wouldn't look at Mickey Mouse. And before long, John was standing on his tiptoes, and he was yelling, See Mickey Mouse! See Mickey Mouse! See Mickey Mouse! And, and the kid wouldn't look, and finally, See Mickey Mouse! And the kid turned around and said, Yeah, kid, I see Mickey Mouse. And then he went back to checking out his groceries, and I don't think he saw Mickey Mouse! And all of a sudden, I, I felt it. I mean, I remember grabbing the railing behind me because in my mind, I actually pictured jumping the counter, grabbing the kid by the throat, shaking him and saying, look at that damn Mickey Mouse Pez dispenser. It's the best Pez dispenser in the whole freaking world. See Mickey Mouse and you see my son. That's Thumas. I was about to go off on this kid. See my son, you moron, see my son. When I think I felt God go off on me, I think I, 
I heard him somehow in my heart say, no, Peter, you see my son. See my son having a hard day behind the counter. See my son, Peter, see my son. You know, John is 29 now, and he's had a lot of hard days. And I could easily imagine him on one of those hard days not seeing uh, the candy Pez dispenser of some three-year-old that he happened to, to run into. Peter, see my son behind the counter. Peter, see my son in the last and the least of these. See my son in the, in the sick and the imprisoned. See my son in, in the poor and the naked. Peter, he calls out to you. And Peter, you don't see. You don't even want to see. You don't even want to look. Peter, did you know I'm a father? Don't you think that I feel wrath? I'm his father, Peter. And I'm John's father. And I'm your father. I feel that way about you too. What does a good father do when one of his children won't see another one of his children? What do I do when Elizabeth won't see John or John won't see Elizabeth? What do I do when John won't see himself? When he won't love himself? What do I do when one of my kids becomes his own worst enemy? What do I do if my bride becomes her own worst enemy? What do I do if my son wants to hurt himself? Do I kill him? Or do I kiss him? Or maybe both. What does a good father do with all his wrath? <sighs> Jesus said, don't let the sun go down on his anger. Don't let the sun go down on, on your anger. That's what he said. How does God not let the sun go down on his anger? What does a good father do with all of his wrath? You know, when I read the word wrath in Revelation 15, I immediately thought of those two instances of my wrath, and then I thought of a third. It was a spring night almost 37 years ago now. I was sitting in the back of this large, ornate sanctuary in downtown Denver, and I was watching my dad being tried on the floor of the Denver Presbytery. That's the local governing body of the Presbyterian Church USA. I knew my father to be the most loving and honest man that I had ever known, but, but there were some people that wanted power, and they felt that they could get that power by accusing my father and taking his church. The church is the bride of Christ, consisting of the children of God, the Father. Well, anyway, this man had just stood up after all these accusations, and after the trial, and he called my dad a liar. And then I watched as they took his church away, took my church away, they took my life away. They took the church away, and they were the church. I watched the church crucify my father. Last week, Carl's sermon was titled, Healing the church wound. Well, the church wounded me. And yet, I'm the church. I'm the church. You see, blood was just like gushing out of every wound in my body. I remember this absolutely intense rage. I, I literally wanted to just beat the hell out of that guy. 
And then I wanted to call down a burning fireball of thumos to consume the whole place, but I couldn't. Didn't have that power, and I'd get arrested if I went and punched that guy. I honestly did not know what to do with all my anger. I was angry at the church. I think maybe I was even angry at my dad for letting it happen. And, and, and I was angry at God because God did let it happen. He let it happen. Ironically, it was around that time that I decided to go into the ministry. I wanted to be a geologist. And it was then I decided to go to seminary. Well, like I was saying, I didn't know what to do with all my anger. I was so angry and even more angry that God didn't seem to get angry. I think that's why most folks don't believe in God. And of course, by believe, I mean trust. I think that's why most people don't, don't trust God and usually hate God because God won't get angry the way we get angry. I think it's why we crucified Jesus. He didn't seem to get angry at least not at the right people in the right way at the right time. He obviously didn't condone robbery and prostitution, and yet he would, host, he would host parties for tax collectors and whores. He obviously did not condone Roman tyranny and oppression, but instead of leading an insurrection against Rome, which he could have done, he allowed Romans to nail him to a tree in a garden just outside the walls of Jerusalem. He allowed it, and he obviously could have stopped it. You know, most seem to think he messed up on the first visit, and that's why he needs to come again. First time he was nice. <laughs> Second time he'll be mean. But Scripture says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it says that God does not change. Well, you see, I think that's why people don't don't trust God, ironically. I, I think people, why people don't trust, and, and they don't trust the gospel that we're called to preach. You know, whenever I point out the scriptures clearly says, God will reconcile all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross, invariably someone will say, what about Hitler? And by that they mean, what about my ex-wife who broke my heart? Or what about that man that abused me when I was a little girl, what about him? You see, they don't trust that God was angry enough. They don't trust that God hates evil enough. They're worried that he'll just let it go. And so even though the Bible never teaches this, this is a pretty popular thing to preach. It's pretty popular to preach, well, God is forgiving now, but you just wait and he'll change. Because you see, God is love, but he's also justice. And by justice, I mean the very opposite of love. So God is love, and oh yeah, and of course he's also the opposite of love. So one day God will be angry, and the sun will never go down in his anger because he'll stop the damn sun and be angry forever without end. He will torture people in hell forever without end. That's a message that'll preach. Because people like that message. It's popular. There's a lot of folks that really like that message. It's good news to them. But it's not good news to God. Because what would it mean? It would mean that he's endlessly angry. 
which means he could never stop. He could never rest. Shabbat, seventh day. It would mean that he must be endlessly unsatisfied with his own creation. It would mean that he must endlessly hate his own children. It would mean that he must endlessly endure the work of the devil rather than destroy the work of the devil. It would mean that his wrath has no purpose. It would mean that his wrath has no goal. So, so God tortures people just for the hell of it, quite literally, just for the, for the hell of it. And that doesn't sound like God, but everything that God is not, it sounds like the devil. So anyway, I'm just pointing out, okay, that some folks don't believe in God because they think he doesn't get angry enough. And then there's other folks that don't believe in God because they hear he gets so angry that his wrath never comes to an end. Some don't trust God because he doesn't seem to have enough wrath. Some don't trust God because he seems to have too much wrath. And all of us don't trust God because, well, because his wrath just seems so indiscriminate. You know what I mean. Some very good things happen to some very bad, bad people. And some very bad things seem to happen to some very good people. Like Martin Luther King Jr. Or Mahatma Gandhi. Or Job. Or Moses. Or Jesus. Well, I think we're all angry about God's anger. And that's because we've all judged God's judgment. That's why I was angry at the truck driver in Phoenix. He had bad judgment. He should have never driven that truck out onto the freeway without first wiping the mud and the rocks off of the, the fenders of the truck. And God should have never put two naked people in a garden with an evil-talking snake and a tree in the middle of the garden that could get a person killed or crucified. Well, anyway, our text begins where we left off last time. Okay, Revelation chapter 14, verse 19. And if you haven't been here, we've been building on all of this stuff, so you can check it out online. But this, this, is what, this is what John writes. So the angel, this is what he saw. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, the eschatos, for with them the wrath of God is finished, from teleo to end, the, the, the telos, the, the end, the thumos of God is finished. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Same Greek word from teleo. And John points out that Jesus was referring to all things. So what's finished? All things are finished. That's, that's what he said. Jesus is the eschatos, which means the last. And Jesus is the telos, which means the end. As you remember, according to Scripture and Jesus and even some physicists, time looks like this. Six days are six ages that to us appear to be about 14 billion years. Humanity is created on the sixth day and finished 
by the seventh day when everything is good, and you are good, and so God rests from all of his labor. And so if you are not perfectly good, God is still working. God is still making you in his image, and God is not yet finished. And for you, it must be the sixth day of creation. Well, anyway, Scripture says that we come to the end of the ages. It says this. We come to the end of the ages. We come to the, the end of days, the end of time, when we come to Jesus, and he cries, it is finished. That's weird. So that means time looks something like this. Or as we've talked about, maybe something like, like this. That seventh day is eternal, so maybe even better, it looks something like, like this. We've talked about all of that. But whatever the case, Jesus the Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, is the door from time as we experience it into eternity. The door from the sixth day when God creates man to the endless seventh day when all is finished and everything, everything, everything is good and God rests. Jesus is crucified on the sixth day of creation, sixth day of the week, sixth hour of the day, six, six, six. And they make sure that his body is taken down from, from the tree before the sun goes down and the Sabbath begins the, the seventh day. So you see, maybe God doesn't allow the sun go down on his anger. Well, no matter whether you follow all of that or not, this is what I hope you noticed. The thumas of God comes to an end. So God is not angry forever without end. But not only does his anger come to an end, it comes to a telos. That means that it has a perfection. That means that all of God's thumas has a purpose. That means that with his thumos in time, God accomplishes his purpose for all eternity. And God has purposed to make you, to make me, to make us in his very own image. You know, God's wrath is not like our wrath. I mean, it is in one way. We get to feel it. But it's not like our wrath because God, he like even plans out his wrath. If you've read the Bible, this is... You've discovered this. Paul writes, he consigned all to disobedience. He consigned all to disobedience. That's what ticks him off, disobedience. He consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on, on all. He plans his wrath, and his wrath accomplishes his purpose. And unless you're already perfect, you haven't yet seen what his wrath will accomplish. So you see, we get angry... I think because we do not trust God's anger. We don't think he'll do a good job of it. We get angry because we do not trust God's anger. In other words, we judge God because we don't trust his judgment, but we haven't yet seen what his judgment will accomplish. Remember, remember this cartoon? God says, something tells me this thing is only half-baked. <laughs> but we look at the world... We look at, at each other, assume that it's finished, and we get angry because it's not good. It's not good, God. Well, if it's not all good, God is still creating it and he's still creating you, and we just learned that he uses thumos to do it. It needs to go back into the oven for a time. The thumos of God 
has a telos, a, a goal. No, I cannot fully explain God's judgment or his wrath, especially as it's applied to six billion individually, uh, individually uh, uniquely loved people and yet uh, loved with, with the same love, same amount of love, and yet loved uniquely. I can't explain all that. I can't fully explain his wrath, but I can believe what he says about his wrath, and that is it comes to an end. And the end is good. The end is perfect. I can't fully explain it, but, but I can believe it and maybe even see it. John's looking at something. What is John looking at? Remember that the book is not titled The Revelation of Weird Things That Might Happen 2,500 Years From Now, somewhere in the distant future. The book is titled The Revelation of Jesus. So what is John looking at? Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's the length of the land of, of Israel, the land. The winepress is just outside Jerusalem and just exactly where Jesus was crucified. It makes blood that's wine and wine that's blood. It forms a river that fills the land to the depths of a horse's bridle. In John's day, horses were used almost exclusively, almost exclusively for, for war. The war horses come to a stop in a sea of blood that flows from this wine press. Like, you wanted blood, now you got blood. And they stop. Then I saw another sign in heaven, another sign. So I think he's seen maybe the same thing from a different angle. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angelos, messengers, seven angels with seven plagues, plagues in Greek. It's where we get the English word plague, but it doesn't really mean plague, it means wound. Most specifically, literally, it means stripe, like the mark that's left from a, from a whip, a stripe, kind of like Isaiah 53, with his stripes we are healed. Seven angels with seven wounds or stripes which are the last, the eschatos. Jesus already told us, I am the eschatos, the last. Seven angels with the seven wounds, which are the last. For with them, the thumas of God is ended. It, it is finished. It is accomplished. It, it has come to, to, an, to an end. It is perfected. Chapter 22, Jesus will say, I am the end. Verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number, 666, of, of its name. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps, guitars in Greek, should be translated guitars, guitars of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations, not some, all will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness Remember, that's the original tabernacle. The sanctuary of the tent of, of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angelos, the seven angels with the seven plagues, stripes or wounds, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave 
to the seven angels seven golden bowls, fialas, full of, of wrath, full of the passion of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven wounds of the seven angels were finished, teleo. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth, the land, the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And as we'll see next time, these wounds from heaven become wounds on earth. Wounds that look just like the wounds you see on this earth every night on the evening news. So what is John looking at? Well, it starts with a vision of this. Remember, we talked about this last time. The winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Last time we saw what the early church saw, and that's that the winepress must be the cross of Christ. And the grapes of wrath, which are vessels of wrath, must be the human soul. God is angry with the human soul that is separated from him. He's angry at the separation. Why? Because he loves every human soul. For in every human soul is his breath, his life. Our souls are separated from God, for we each take our life and claim it as our own life. And yet, Scripture says, Jesus says, I am the life. Jesus is the life. Taking the life is the definition of sin, and the day we do, we die. Every sin is saying to God, I, I take the life. I take my life, but I will not surrender it. It's like breathing in and refusing to breathe out. It's like a body part that receives blood, but will not bleed blood, and so it cannot receive more blood, and what happens? It dies. It's like being totally self-centered and never learning to love. It's, it's death. Well, as we talked about, the cross works the death of death, which is the resurrection and the life. At the cross, God turns vessels of wrath into vessels of, of mercy. At the cross, he turns blood clots into blood vessels. At the cross, God gives us the will to love, which is the will to give life to others, and you see, Jesus himself is the very will of God bleeding in, into us. So at the cross, God takes our sin and turns it into his wine. It's called grace. It's his river of life that flows through all the members of his body. So at the cross, we die with Christ, and we rise with Christ. Your life is not your own. Don't know if you knew that, but you are his body. So anyway, John sees the wine press, and then he sees the angels that come out of the sanctuary. And this is the really wild thought, but according to John, Paul, and Jesus, we are Christ's temple, we are Christ's body, we are his sanctuary. The seven angels are like seven angels, remember, in the, in the seven churches. They know what's going on. Uh, they're either the spirit of Christ or messengers of Christ. They're dressed just like Christ was dressed at the start of the vision. They're also dressed just like the priests in the temple. They come out of the temple with plagues, with wounds or, or stripes. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. With his stripes, his stripes, we are healed. 
The stripes, or wounds, are poured out... Now listen closely. The wounds are poured out on the earth, and yet they originate in heaven. As if he was crucified from the foundation of the world long before you were ever born. As if it was God's plan to bear your wounds and your sorrows all along. As if he subjected creation to futility and all men to disobedience just so that we would see and believe the wonder of his mercy. As if he wanted to show us, this is how much I love you. See my hands, see my feet. Take your fingers and put them, put them in the wounds. Your wounds are my wounds. My wounds are your wounds. And now I hope you see why God's wrath is not indiscriminate. You know, Jesus said, whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. So you take their life, you take my life. And check this out. Whenever someone tries to take your life, which I think is the definition of sin, when they sin against you, whenever someone tries to take your life in big ways or little ways because they have judged you, the last and the least of these, they aren't just taking your life, they're taking Christ's life. Because your life is Christ's life. Jesus weeps your every tear. Jesus knows intimately your every sorrow. Jesus feels your every wound because he is literally the blood you bleed. So his wrath is not indiscriminate. It's perfect. And it accomplishes its purpose. So John sees the wine press, John sees the wounds, John sees the temple, and John sees the sea of glass mingled with fire. In the temple, God had instructed Solomon to make this thing that they called a molten sea. It was this giant basin filled with water in which the priests would wash themselves before they approached the throne of God so the glory of God wouldn't kill them. John sees people that appear to have passed through that sea. The sea is fire. And God is fire. And God is love. That means he's not part fire and part love. He's like all fire and and all love. The, the love is fire. The sea is fire and water like glass. It burns and it comforts. We'll talk more about that a lot more next week. But John sees the wine press. He sees the wounds. He sees the temple. And he sees the baptism of fire with which we must all be baptized. And he sees bowls. Seven fialis in Greek. It's this really special word because it's used to refer to these broad, flat bowls that pagan priests would use to offer wine to the gods in pagan temples. It's also used to refer to the bowls that the priests in the temple in Jerusalem would use to catch the, the blood of sacrifice, which would then be sprinkled on the altar and sprinkled on the people, and once a year sprinkled behind the curtain on the very throne of God, the mercy uh, seat of God, they'd sprinkle blood. So what's in these bowls? It's something that's poured, like, like a liquid. In the next chapter, an angel cries, you have given them blood to drink, 
In the last chapter, sinners are made to drink the wine of the wrath of God. In the Old Testament, over and over again, God's wrath is said to be this cup of wine that he makes people drink. We just read how God makes wine that is blood and blood that is wine. This whole vision is of a slaughtered lamb standing on a throne called the mercy seat, which is also called the throne of God, on which the blood of sacrifice is sprinkled and from which flows a river of life, and the life is in the blood. So what's in the bowls? The blood of the Lamb. And why do you come to church every week? To drink the blood of the Lamb, which is the grace of God. So what is, what is John seeing? Well, it must be something like this. Pilo, stay. To not to me. When we come to the cross. What do we see? We see that we have each taken the life of God, which is the good, on a tree. And what else do we see? That God has always given the life of God, which is good, on a tree. The life is in the blood, and all the life in all the blood in all the world is Him. He's the life. God is love and he constantly bleeds mercy. God's wrath is his mercy. John sees God's eternal mercy and is poured out over all the days of time. God's wrath is his eternal mercy applied to our sin in our days of time. When people take blood, what do we do? We take blood in return. That's human vengeance. But when we take blood, what does God do? He gives blood. That's the vengeance of God. His vengeance is absolute mercy. It's the fluid love bleeds. And now if you think that means that it's only sweet and nothing could be sweeter than that. If you think it's only sweet and does not burn, you've probably never taken a really good drink from the cup of the Lord. You've probably never consciously experienced the terrifying grace of God. About 20 years ago, I had an encounter with God that most of you know about. I was at this conference at a hotel in Canada. I was holding hands with these two people, a little old Roman Catholic lady on one side and a huge, fat Native American Pentecostal man on the other side. As we began to pray for the first time, and this is the only time this ever happened to me, I heard God audibly. And this is what he said. Peter. You don't love my bride very much, do you? And immediately, I knew, I knew he wasn't talking about Susan. He was talking about the church. 
And immediately, immediately I knew that I had gone into the ministry because I hated the church. Because I wanted to fix the church. I wanted to teach the church a lesson. I knew that I decided to become a pastor because of that day 15 years before when I saw my dad tried on the floor of the Denver Presbytery in that room in that church downtown. And I, and I, I just did not know what to do with all my anger. Oh, my wrath. In an instant, I saw that all my good deeds were just laced with evil. I saw I didn't love the church. I wanted to use the church to create my life, heal all my wounds, and get vengeance on the people that had hurt me. I laid on the floor of this ballroom, and I wept uncontrollably for like at least an hour. You see, it burns the human ego to be exposed to, to absolute love. And to realize that all your good deeds are actually your worst deeds. But here's the truly weird thing, the holy thing. It was unbelievably sweet. I mean, there was absolutely no condemnation in God's voice, only compassion. I'm sorry for you. It didn't imprison me in shame, but set me free and filled me with gratitude. And it felt, it literally felt like the tears I wept, they weren't mine, they were God's. In me, through me, for me, with me. Later that night, he literally pinned me to the floor and showed me that he was everywhere and everywhere loving me, and he just wanted me to stop doubting his love. His wrath is his mercy encountering our sin. You see, it utterly annihilates the human ego and sets us free to live in love. That was an absolutely earth-shattering experience for me, and yet I soon realized it was just the beginning of the lesson. Ten years later, my dad had died, and my church had grown like crazy, and it appeared that I, Peter Hyatt, had fixed the church. And yet I had been getting in some trouble, for I'd been preaching what God had showed me, that God's wrath is God's mercy, and that he's fixing to make all things new, just like he says at the end of the book of the Revelation. Some people were taking advantage of the opportunity and trying to take my life and take my church, because at that, that time, my church, not that you aren't, but my church was sexy, really sexy. I was about to be tried on, on the floor of the Presbytery, the Presbytery of the West and the EPC, it was a Sunday. I had preached at Lookout, and I'd just come down from the stage while people were coming forward for communion. I remember Susan was goofing around. She was goofing around, and I was thinking, woman, get your act together. I'm, I mean, I'm about to get grilled, and we need to impress the troops. Would you get your act together? Well, just, just a few moments later, she grabbed my arm, and I knew that something had happened. She said, Peter, she's whispering in my ear while people are coming back. She said, Peter, I just saw your dad. My dad had been dead for like two, three years by now. I just saw your dad and he was standing in front of us and he was so young and he was so alive and his eyes, his eyes were like on fire and he leaned forward with this like, this bowl thing in his hand. And she, and she, she, was, she was amazed at this bowl. She kept talking about this bowl. He had this bowl in his hand. He leaned forward, he held it out and he said, Susan and Peter, do not be afraid to drink from the cup that the Lord has for you. And then he vanished. I remember thinking, how cool. And then, oh shit. And everything that happened to my dad happened to me, only worse. 
And I've told you about that. But for years, I've wondered about that cup that was also a bowl that was in the hands of my father. At first, I thought it meant that I was sharing in Christ's sufferings, and I'm sure it means something like that, but not, but not simply that. I think it means that where I once took Christ's life, he had given his life. And when people took life from me, he wanted me to freely give it. I think it meant that he wanted me to learn to love his bride the way he loved his bride, the way he loves each one of us. I think it meant that he wanted me to learn to forgive. Within a few weeks of getting defrocked and losing what I thought was my life, Francis and I were walking through downtown Denver, you know, looking for this a place to, to meet. And we found this big old Presbyterian church that would allow us to, to meet there on Sunday nights. I called my mom and I said, Mom, hey, guess what? We're going to start meeting on Sunday nights at Central Presbyterian Church. She said, Peter, don't you remember what that place is? I said, no, what are you talking about? She said, well, that's the room that you saw your dad tried on the floor of the Denver Presbytery. And all at once, I remembered everything about it, the carpet, the pews, the funky weird cross that they had down there, every detail of the room. And so God had me stand in the very spot I saw my dad tried and crucified. He, saw, he had me stand in the very spot I saw my dad get tried, the very spot I watched the church attempt to take the life of my father. He had me stand there and give the life of my father, my father in heaven for, for a year. He had me stand there and preach the gospel. He had me stand there and learn to forgive. And you see, I'm just beginning to learn to forgive. When one person forgives, it looks like a man crucified on a tree. When two people forgive, it looks like a, a really good marriage. When everyone forgives, it's a great party called the kingdom of God. And it's rather impossible to sin there for the moment you take someone's life, they've already given their life. The moment you take their blood, they've already given their blood. See, when everyone forgives, everyone bleeds. They bleed life one into the other like members of a body because it is a body. It's the body of Christ. God is love and his judgment is mercy. When his mercy encounters our sin, we experience wrath. It destroys our ego. It destroys our pride and it destroys our shame. It destroys our ego and it frees us to live in love. It kills the old man and it gives birth to the new man. The wrath of God is finished at the cross. It's how God makes us in his image and saves himself from the pain of our sin. I'm saying the wrath of God is perfect. Romans 12, Paul wrote this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We don't leave it to the wrath of God. Why? Because we don't trust the wrath of God. And so we refuse to forgive others. And check this out, we refuse to forgive ourselves. We make others pay and we make ourselves pay and none of us can pay. None of us can pay. We refuse to forgive because we think it means that evil goes unpunished 
and people will stay just as they are, and Hitler will get into heaven with his stinky bad old rock stone, stone heart. But forgiveness does not mean that we will stay just as we are and that people are not repaid for their sin. God repays our sin with his mercy, but that mercy utterly destroys our sin and creates us in his image. With the wrath of God, we are finished. Mercy is the fluid love bleeds. And when you forgive, you bleed fire. You bleed the vengeance of God and are used by him to make all things new. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is the good. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. This is the good. This is the judgment of God. If you run from it, I'm just warning you, the only place to hide is the outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. And yet even that will be thrown into a lake of burning hot mercy, as we'll read in just a few chapters. This is the judgment of God. This is it. Are you ready? You are forgiven. That means that you are not worse than anybody else. It also means that you are not better than anybody else. You may be a little further along in your journey, but you are not better than anybody else. Not even your worst enemy. That burns. You see, it burns you right down to a little child at play in his father's garden. In the words of Karl Barth, it burns you right down to faith. It burns you right down to that little child that play in, 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 your, in, your father's, in your father's garden. But now you know something you did not know before. What is it you know? You know the good, which is manifest in Jesus Christ our Lord, the judgment of God. Now, as we've been preaching here towards the end, you may have had a name that popped into your head or someone you were thinking of. You go, that, you're angry at them. <laughs> Maybe God wants you to forgive them. Sometimes people don't forgive because they think that means, then he just lets them, no, don't. <laughs> Believe me, you can trust the wrath of God to do its work. So you're entrusting them to the wrath of God, all right? You, you, the, 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 wrath, the wrath is real. It's just we can't administer it. You're addressing them to the wrath of God, and you're saying, I, I let go of them. I hand them over to you, God. So maybe you have someone in your mind. We'll, we'll forgive them. 
Close your eyes and just pray with me right now. You, you're thinking of the name and just do this, okay? In, in your heart, pray silently after me. In the name of Jesus, I forgive. And then say their name. It means that you will no longer try to make them pay. And now there's another name that maybe some of you had in your mind. And that's your own. Because I think this is the hardest one of all. You need to forgive yourself. You need to stop trying to make yourself pay and make everyone else pay. That's what leads to all the bloodshed in this world when God has already provided more than enough blood from his wine press. So just say this in your heart, silently after me, in the name of Jesus, I forgive myself. And God, I even, I even forgive you. Not that you did anything wrong, but I've been angry at you. But I will entrust you to your own judgment because, wow, it's good. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. They're both the judgment of God. Come to the table, tear a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and ingest the judgment of God, the mercy of God, the wrath of God, for with it, you're finished. So, Lord God, my Father, I confess to you that I, I have been a slave to fear and to anger in ways I couldn't even understand. And Lord, we've been slave to anger. Sometimes it takes the form of resentment. Sometimes it takes the form of shame. Sometimes it takes the form of drivenness. Sometimes it takes the form of rage. Sometimes it takes the form even of um, registering for seminary. <laughs> but Lord, I thank you that, that you forgive us and shower us with your mercy. I, I thank you that I'm no longer a slave of fear, and I thank you for forgiving me, for not believing that I'm no longer a slave of fear. I thank you, Lord, that even that faith in your gospel is a gift of grace which you are giving to me all the days of my life. We thank you, Lord God, that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. And so by way of benediction, this is all I'm saying, believe the gospel. It means good news. In Jesus' name, live. And then I have to say one other thing, and I'm the pastor, which means you must obey me. That is, you need to go eat ice cream now, okay? Unless you need to pray with, pray with one of the members of the prayer team down front. But eat ice cream and have a great week. See you, see you next week.